When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the howling of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our native tongues, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Let's pray. Father, you've done this over the centuries gathered us together in rooms to wait on you and to perfect what you began in us. And we ask that our hearts would be open to you perfecting what you began in us. We ask you to forgive our sins so that we can get our eyes off ourselves and on, onto you. You've given us many languages here that we all speak to different people, to business people, to farmers, to musicians, to so many different people. Let the people that we speak to in our lives hear what you've done in our lives and let us witness that today. Let your spirit be in us and among us and within us like the air we breathe. We pray you'd bless our pastor John as he gives us this message and that our hearts would be open. In Jesus' name, there is none like you, God. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Let's give Mike a round of applause for crushing those names. That's Olympic-level Bible reading right there. Uh, when I was 16, I played, well, I, was, I, I say I played, I was on the basketball team at Metro Christian and uh, didn't go into the last 30 seconds of a game when we were up 30 or 40 points. It was pretty epic. I took some great charges. I did a spin move once. People went crazy. But... Uh, so one winter break, uh, we had practice up at the gym at Metro, which is 61st in Peoria area. And uh, I, I planned on going to the gym for practice and then going home. Uh, it was pretty cold, but I thought, I'm just going to run in and out, no big deal. So I wore my basketball shoes, my shorts, and a t-shirt. I failed to bring with me my wallet, and it was like 2000, 2001, so I didn't have a cell phone with me. I didn't have a cell phone. And uh, went to practice. Uh, practiced for a couple of hours, and coach said, hey, after this, let's all go to that place at 61st and Sheridan, I don't remember what it was, and we'll grab a meal together. I said, great. Um, so, but we went outside, we noticed that it was snowing really hard, and uh, I had a 1989 Chevy Scottsdale single cab pickup, short bed, it was fantastic. I, I really missed that truck, it was a stick shift, and uh, I, I forgot, oh man, I don't have any money for lunch, and then I looked at the gas tank, and there was almost no gas in the car. I mean, like I was like past the dial, and I thought, 
it'll be fine. It's snowing and I don't have any money or gas, but it'll be fine. You see, they say that, uh, especially among adolescent males, they don't develop this frontal cortex until the early 20s. It, it may have been late 20s for me, but I definitely didn't have it at 16. And uh, so I started making my way up 61st, Lewis, Harvard, I'm going uh, east on Yale. And you know, as you come up to Kings Point, there's a little bit of a hill there. That was a problem in the truck. It was really light in the back and some fishtailing everywhere trying to make my way up. And I get to like the crest and then uh, the tank dies, like the car dies, the engine dies and I'm out of gas. There is a gas station further up right at Yale. So I think I'm going to go through the Kings Point parking lot here. This is going to go great. So I hang, like I get, I managed to get it started. I, I turn left and then I turn an immediate right, which if you can picture like where Zoe's is, I think, great, I'm going to shortcut right through there to the Shell station that was there. Chipotle's there now. Well, I get in and then I discover that it's a dead end. So it's a dead end, I've got no gas, and it's really hard to turn this thing around. And then finally, like, the engine just, like, dies. And so I walk over to the shell, hoping to God that they've got a gas tank and that they'll give a kid with no money some gas. I call my dad uh, on, the, on the shell phone, and I'm pleading with the attendant, will you let me, like, give you my dad's credit card number over the phone, and then he can pay for the gas that I can put in the tank that you're lending me? And she was not going to do it. So I had to walk a mile in the snow in my basketball shoes and my shorts and a t-shirt with no wallet and a cell phone to my uncle's dentist office. And by the time I arrived, I was really cold and really angry. And it was a horrible situation. Unfortunately, this actually happened not exactly like this. Like three months ago, with all of my children and my wife in the car, I ran out of gas because I wasn't paying attention. Also on Yale. So I'm going to stay away from Yale. But it's this situation where I ended up cold and alone and without power, and it was horrible. And unfortunately, cold, alone, and without power describes the spiritual life of a ton of people who say they follow Jesus. Cold, alone, and without power. Uh, a lot of times, the folks who go to the early service at a church, certainly not at our church, but the early service at many churches, they call them, does anyone know the phrase? The frozen chosen. What a horrible phrase for a group of people. They're so lacking vibrancy and spiritual vitality. They're the frozen chosen. They're cold. Without power, there's a sense that like, man, like someone needs to plug this thing back in. Those people look like dead. They've gotten off life support. Um, and even this, the idea of being alone. People have gone to church for decades and never made a true friend. You've been in Sunday school classes and small groups, and there's no one who really knows your story, no one who's really spurring you on in your relationship with Jesus. And whether you're seated in a room or a circle or a small group, you're ultimately alone. The Christian life of, of far too many people could be described as cold and alone and without power, without meaningful friendships or vitality. Well, what's crazy is this is not at all what Jesus envisioned. When he promised that the Spirit would fall and they'd give birth to the church, being cold and alone and without power was not at all what Jesus had in mind. In fact, the story of Pentecost that Mike just read really stands out as unique among the world religions, this moment of great revelation. You think about Judaism, how Moses was alone on top of the mountain when, when Yahweh gave the Ten Commandments, gave the law. 
You think about the belief within Islam that Muhammad was, was alone when he was given the, the words of the Quran. The belief within Mormonism that Joseph Smith was alone when he had his moment of revelation and was given these golden tablets, so they believe. The Buddha was alone when he reached enlightenment. Among all the world religions, Christianity really stands out as unique. If, Christian, if the story of Pentecost were to be told in the, in the same way that is told of the world religions, it'd go like this. That on the day of Pentecost... God prompted Peter to go up onto the Mount of Olives. And Peter there in Gethsemane, where Jesus had prayed before his crucifixion, there where he'd spent so much time with the disciples, there where he promised he would return when he came back, there the Holy Spirit descended on Peter. And Peter alone was filled with power, and he went back to lead the church. If the story of Pentecost were to be told in the vein of all of the great world religions, other than Christianity, that's how it would be told. And yet it was told in a very peculiar way that the Holy Spirit did not fall on one anointed leader. The Holy Spirit fell on a community of people. A community. Before his ascension, Jesus was talking to all these people, all of his followers, this community, and he said, I'm about to do something awesome. So I want you to stay in Jerusalem, and I want you to wait for a gift that my Father is delighted to give you. He's been waiting to give you, but stay and wait and you'll receive it. And Jesus said, this gift is so good, which is beyond your comprehension. It's worth me leaving. I know you're going to be sad when I head out, but it's worth me leaving the gift I'm about to give you. And this is what Jesus said in John 16, 7. He said, seriously, truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. It's for your benefit that I'm leaving. Unless I go away, the advocate, which is another word for the Holy Spirit here, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him. If the disciples were open, if they do what Jesus says, which was to stay and to wait, they're going to be given this gift. I remember one Christmas I discovered, when I was a kid, I discovered the place where my parents hid the Christmas gifts. And, uh, and I think I got in trouble. I think they still gave it to me, but I was unwilling to wait, and I got in big trouble. Jesus said, if you're open, stay, wait, and you're going to receive this gift. And so they cooperated. At the end of Acts chapter 1, we see who does it. It's the 11 disciples. Judas was out of the picture. It was the 11 disciples. Mary, the mother of Jesus. I've never noticed that. Mary was there in the upper room. There were a bunch of women who traveled with Jesus and, and cared for his needs and were among his first disciples. The women were there. And Jesus' biological brothers were there. About 120 people met in this, in this upper room that they had rented, staying and waiting because Jesus had told them to. They were waiting, and on the day of Pentecost, the text says, uh, they were all together in this one place praying. The day of Pentecost was a day, it was a, it was a Hebrew festival, a Jewish festival where they would celebrate the harvest coming in, but it was also where they remembered how Yahweh had given the law, the Ten Commandments to Moses on the mountain at Sinai. And uh, it was a freaky thing, all of Sinai, because there's Moses is up there by himself, there's smoke and fire, and the people are trembling at the bottom of the mountain. M Moses and fire had been a thing previously. Uh, Moses, God had appeared to him when he was out in the desert at this burning bush. This bush was, being, was on fire, but yet was not being consumed. It was a miracle that convinced Moses something strange is happening here. 
He saw the fire at the burning bush. He saw the fire on the mountain. And then when God gave instructions to the, the, the Jewish people for this particular way that God would live among them through the tabernacle and later the temple, God instructed there was to be this fire on the altar in front of the Holy of Holies that was never to be put out, a continuous fire, a reminder of the presence of God among the people. And so on this particular day of Pentecost, they're together, men and women, young and old, waiting to receive what was promised. And it says suddenly something strange happened. Suddenly there was a sound like the blowing of a mighty wind. And I think it was like a bunch of blowers. People just walked in. I was expecting a more raucous reaction to this visual aid. So I'd appreciate a little more oohs and ahs or something, okay? No, it was worth a try. It was worth a try. Next week I'll do a weed eater, okay? <laughs> Come on. So they're all together in one place, and suddenly there's this, there's this wind that's way louder than a half-charged. I should have charged it a little bit more. <laughs> Guys, if I had charged it all the way, you would have been weeping. Like, it would have been, I don't even need to preach. We take off our shoes. It's holy ground kind of thing. All of a sudden, there's a sound like the rushing of a violent wind. In Genesis 1, we see this, uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the language for wind is the same as spirit. In the Old Testament, it's ruach, wind or spirit. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters at creation. There's this sense like like something's in the air. There's something creative and new happening. In in the New Testament, whenever you see spirit, it's pneuma, it's the same word for wind. Jesus says, keep in step with the spirit. He says, uh, like the spirit's like the wind. It goes wherever it pleases. There was a wind, the blowing of a violent wind. God was stirring up something new. And then something even crazier happened. All of a sudden, there was like a tongue of fire that came to rest on top of every person. They started speaking in other languages. And we know it was known languages because the text tells us people heard their own language being spoken by people who didn't even know it. And this amazing thing happened, that the fire that had been present at the burning bush and the fire that was, that was present at Sinai and the fire that was in the temple, in the altar, continuously burning, the sign of God's presence with the people had now been democratized. And the Spirit was now resting not on one person and not in the temple, but on the entire church and on each of its individuals. The Spirit had relocated to the church And it was resting on everybody, man and woman, young and old. Jesus in John's gospel had had this conversation with a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan woman said, well, look, you Jews said that you're supposed to worship God in Jerusalem in the temple because that's where God lives. But we Samaritans say, you know, we should worship here. And Jesus said, look, I'm telling you the truth. The time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. There's going to come a time when we can stop talking about the particular land where God lives. The temple, the presence of God was now among the people who had faith in Jesus, both on the whole and on the individual, which is why Paul in the New Testament can say, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body is the place where God dwells. Maybe some of you have had the chance to go to Jerusalem or to stand on the Temple Mount, now where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is standing, and it's a holy place, certainly a very historical place, uh, but a hotly contested, the most hotly contested piece of real estate in, you know, in human history. But people believe that's where God dwells. 
But with, on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, the Holy Spirit didn't land on one piece of geography except in the place where those who believe in Jesus are walking. The Holy Spirit is no longer in one geographical place that we need to fight over. The Holy Spirit is universally available to everyone who believes in Jesus. We should be the most hotly contested pieces of real estate in all of the world because we, the church and the individual, are the place where God's Spirit dwells. God is not more present in any one city than He is in the life of the believer. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers them to start talking in other languages, and they're speaking so loudly that people who aren't even in the room, who are out in the city, hear the gospel in their own language, and they're freaking out, and they come to believe. And when they return to their home countries, they take the gospel with them. It says thousands were added to their number daily, the people who'd come to believe, young and old, men and women, walking residences of the Holy Spirit not cold and alone and without power, but in a moment alive and together and on fire with power from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was doing a good work in the church. The Holy Spirit is integral to the life of the church. There's no gospel-shaped community. There's certainly no renewal apart from an utter dependence on the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit draws us to Jesus. The Spirit's like a tether. I have this picture in my mind that Jesus just kept me roped in over the years when I could have gone to the left or to the right. That's the work of the Spirit, tethering us to Jesus, drawing us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit reminds us what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit guides us into truth and assures us that we're adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and works to make us well. The Holy Spirit gives us courage, guides us in decision-making, empowers us to obey, gives us insight. The Holy Spirit gives us these, these unique gifts, these superpowers that are given to us to help the body of Christ to help us so that together, using our gifts the way that God has blessed us, we can be mature and complete together. We can grow up in Christ. And the Spirit is a gift that God is delighted to give. There's a passage in Luke where Jesus is, is talking to the disciples, and he says something that's really poignant and, and important for us today as we're on this theme of the Holy Spirit. He says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. He's going to say, ask, seek, and knock. And it's not just like ask one time. It's continuously ask. Ask and keep asking. Ask and keep asking. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And then he, because like our brains are kind of slow to understand what he's getting at, he gives us this picture of a great dad. He says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, for something to eat, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? He said, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and then pay attention to these next three words, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So uh, if you're a parent, imagine your kid's hungry um, and it's time for a meal. Yeah, you give him something to eat as best you can. 
Or if you're not a parent, imagine someone's in your care that needs something from you that you can give. You're a good-hearted person. You, I mean, if, if it's in your power to do good, you can do it. You want to. If, if that's our impulse and we're broken, imperfect people, how much more is our Heavenly Father delighted to give us the stuff that we most need? He's not withholding. He's not a tease. He knows what we need, and Jesus said He's delighted to give it even more than we're delighted to give good things to the people in our care. And in this particular case, the Father is delighted to give the Holy Spirit to those people who ask. So I want to make a little space this morning to do something that's perhaps new to you, uh, something a little different. Either the words that Jesus said are true, that the Father is delighted to give the Spirit, or they're not true. I believe they're true. I believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is delighted to work in Christ's church to tether us to each other and to tether us to Christ. I believe this is true. I think that a good picture for what the life with the Holy Spirit's like is like being in a sailboat. And the wind can blow as much as it wants, but until we've hoisted our sails, we're not taking advantage of it. Or if it's like, like me running out of gas, sitting next to the pump, until I open the door, and it also helps to have a little money with you, but that's where the metaphor breaks down. Until we open up the door, like we're, we're going to sit there without power into eternity future. Are we open to receive? Are we willing to cooperate? And so last week I primed the pump, and ask the question, are you open to the work of the Holy Spirit? Some of you may be skeptical because you've had run-ins with weird Holy Spirit people in the past, or you've seen abuses, or you've seen a, a lack of wisdom in, in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. People have, have not been discerning. Maybe you've seen abuses, and so that's understandable. I hope that this morning we can create a safe space to, uh, to, to give it a shot. And you know, for me, I, I had spent so many years being in a Holy Spirit inundated environment that I pressed pause and walked away. And for me, it's not to the last uh, six, seven, eight years that I've been saying, all right, I'm open again. And so I want to ask all of you, are you open to the Holy Spirit being at work in your life? Ask yourself that question. How would you answer that? If being open meant that God did something in your life, would you say you're open? And uh, if you're open, I'm going to invite you to do something uh, unusual. I'm going to invite you, I'm going to guide you through this kind of uh, creative prayer, this kind of meditation where we're going to visualize some things as a way of expressing our openness to the Holy Spirit. Let me say, what we're about to do is not magic. What we're about to do is not emotional manipulation or coercion. Uh, what we're about to do is not something that I've planned. It could be like we sit in silence for a while and we leave wondering, did it work? It's not mine to, it's not mine to make happen. Jesus said the Father in heaven's delighted to give the Spirit. And so we want to cooperate with that and take Him on His word. So I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. I think God respects our dignity, respects our choice. And so for those of you who'd say, I'm open to the work of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to invite you to repeat some words after me as a prayer. But as we gear up for that, I want you to picture, uh, I want you to picture yourself inside your own heart, okay? 
And there's a door in front of you. It's locked from the inside. That's the door that opens or closes the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you're here this morning, you'd say, I'm open to the work of the Holy Spirit. I want you to imagine yourself putting your hand on the knob. Jesus said, here I am. I'm standing at the door. And knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with them. If you're open to the work of the Holy Spirit, I want you to imagine reaching out, grabbing the doorknob and and opening it. Opening the door. And then speaking these words to Jesus. I want you to repeat after me. I'm open to the Holy Spirit. I don't know how this works. But I'm taking you at your word. Holy Spirit, come and work in me. Do what I can't do. Prove yourself faithful. I'm open to the work of the Holy Spirit in me. Ben and Noel are going to come up and and lead us in a couple of songs on the theme of the Holy Spirit. And I'll invite you, if you're you're sincerely open, to stay in this place of of, uh, kind of prayer and meditation, just being open to the Spirit. And as Jesus said, we're we're invited to ask and keep asking, seek and, and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. And so maybe you would pray as we sing these songs like, Lord, I'm open, just a little breath prayer. Lord, I'm open. I'm open. I'm open. If you want to kneel down at the pew, you can. If you want to come up here and pray, you can. Um, If you want to stand and sing these words as a prayer of openness, you can. If you want to go into an aisle and kneel, you can. If you want to lift your hands as a sign of openness, you can. And we're just trusting, Holy Spirit, that whatever work you want to do, you're going to do. We confess we don't have to twist your arm. God's a good Father, so we trust whatever gift you want to give us, and we just say we're open. So we'll have a couple of minutes of, of singing and a prayer. Be open to whatever God says to you. Anticipate that He might speak. Anticipate that He might move in your heart, and as you're Uh, As you want to, you can stand and sing or you can kneel. And then in a couple minutes, we'll share communion together because the Holy Spirit always takes us to Jesus.
Spirit of the living God, we're leaning on to all you are. Everything else can wait. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, come now and breathe upon our and 
Look at 